One of the common tasks that every soldier is expected to be able to perform is land navigation. With land navigation, you're given a map and a compass, and you have to find your way from point A to point B. The points were usually fence posts or tent stakes that were left somewhere out in the woods. And so in order to find a a tent stake or a fence post out in the middle of the woods, or to find a specific fence post or a tent stake out in the middle of the woods, you can't just go in a generally north direction. You have to go to a very careful uh, about where you go, to go on a particular degree, and it's called an, an azimuth for a specific distance. Now, if you've ever looked at a compass, you know that the tick marks between the different degrees, they're really close together. And you would think, just looking at it, that being one or two degrees off, it wouldn't be that big of a deal, and you wouldn't end up that far off, and you could probably still find your tent stake or your fence post in the woods. But it really is a big deal. You end up really far off, and it's almost impossible to find what you're supposed to find if you kind of drift in that way. If you are merely one degree off and you walk a thousand meters, you'll be a hundred meters from the fence post you're supposed to be finding. And the further you walk, the further off you get. And that's why you have to be very careful about sticking to your azimuth. Now, part of what makes sticking to an azimuth difficult is every person has a tendency to drift when we walk. I promise you, if you were to just go out and try to walk a straight line without looking at something off in the distance, you would probably drift either to the left or to the right, but you don't naturally just walk a a particularly straight line. We all have a tendency to drift in one direction or another. So you have to compensate for your tendency to drift by being extra careful to stick to your asthma. Now, land navigation is not unlike our spiritual lives. There is a particular place that we want to go. But we can't get there just by walking in a general direction. Instead, we have to carefully follow the azimuth given to us in Scripture. We have to follow this azimuth carefully because we all have a tendency to drift off course. And if we get careful, we will drift off course. And the longer that we drift off course, the further off course that we get. Drifting is one of the most spiritually dangerous issues in our lives. And this morning we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that lays it out with clarity, that lays it out in difficulty. Why drifting is so spiritually dangerous. So open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 2, page 920 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Hebrews 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed by those who heard Him? God also bearing witness with both signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to His own will. The title of the message this morning is The Danger of Drifting. Let's pray. Our Father, we love You today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We come today with a desire, Lord, to walk in the way that You would want us to walk. Father, we want to end up with You. I mean, we want our lives to be lived with You now, but God, we want to be with You in eternity. And yet, Lord, we'll not drift through life and make it to heaven. 
Father, we'll not just drift through life and end up with you, Lord. We have to be particular. We have to be careful. For we all have a tendency to drift. The song says, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And that is all of our testimony in here today. So, Father, today as we look at this passage that shows us the danger of drifting. Give us hearts that would take it and apply it to our lives. Give us ears that would hear what you have for us today. Help us, Father, to push back against our flesh, which is going to tell us not to take this so seriously. Help us to resist the temptation from the enemy that's, that's going to tell us that it's not really as severe as what, what I'm making it out to be. But God, let us come today with a humility at your word that says this is your word. And what you say, that's what's right. God, today that we would hear and that, Lord, if we are drifting, that you would make it clear and it would bother us. That your Holy Spirit would use the word and course correct us until we're back on the path that you would have us to go. Fill me this morning with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech, that I could speak your words and your ways for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The Hebrew Christians are suffering because of their conversion and their devotion to Jesus. They are, at this point, considering going back to Judaism out of an effort to get out from underneath the suffering. Their reasoning is, if we go back to the way things were, Life will go back to the way things were, and it won't hurt any longer. The author of Hebrews somehow finds out about this, and he writes this letter to them, encouraging them to stay faithful to Jesus. And he does this by reminding them that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than the law. The sacrifice of Jesus is better than the sacrifices that were taking place under the law. Jesus is the best there is. Jesus is the greatest there is. And anything we suffer for Jesus will be worth it in the end because in the end we get Jesus. And where we pick up at, the author has just reminded them that Jesus is greater than Moses and Jesus is greater than the angels. And that leads him to the therefore. Since Jesus is greater than Moses and since Jesus is greater than the angels, we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard. We are to let, he is laying great stress on the fact that we must hold tightly to what we have heard about Jesus. And he says that if we, if we don't, if we don't take the more earnest heed, what will happen is we will drift away. What he's talking about is we will drift away from the message of Jesus or we will drift away from Jesus himself. Now the picture of drifting, it is one that kind of should haunt us, I believe. Because it's not a picture of taking a huge decisive step away from Jesus. Instead, it is a picture of a consistent progression away from Jesus. A slow, consistent progression away from Jesus. The Greek word translated as drift, it often carried with it the idea of carelessness. Now think about that for a second. It's not so much a picture of rejecting Jesus. 
It's not a picture of rejecting Scripture, saying, no, I don't want any more to do with that any longer. Instead, it pictures being careless about the things of God, being being careless about the Word when we study it, being careless about taking heed to the Word when we hear it preached, being careless about our relationship with Jesus. And so we begin a slow, steady drift away from Jesus. Now, I'm convinced that no one goes from a thriving relationship with Jesus to abandoning Jesus in one decisive step. Instead, it happens like what we see here. It happens through a consistent, gradual drift. I'm sure we can all think of people who used to be committed to Jesus, but now they are far, far from Christ. And if we knew them well enough that we could have seen their lives and what was going on, we would see that it didn't happen overnight. It wasn't just that they went to bed devoted to Jesus and they had said their prayers and read their Bible and they woke up the next morning and just decided they didn't want Jesus anymore. Instead, there were little steps here and little steps there. A little compromise here. A small sin there. Skipping reading your Bible here. Not praying there. Church not that important here. Don't have to respond to conviction there. And none of the steps at the time seemed big. I mean, it was just a little thing here and just a little thing there. But over time, the little steps added up to a big distance. And now they are very, very far from Christ. See, the danger of drift isn't merely that others drift. The danger of drift is that we all Drift. We all have a tendency to drift. That's why the author says we must take the more earnest heed. We have to be intentional about listening and taking that heed or we will drift. John Popper explains it this way. That's the point here. There is no standing still. The life of this world is not a lake. It's a river. And it's flowing downward to destruction. You do not listen earnestly to Jesus and consider Him daily and fix your eyes on Him hourly. Then you will not stand still. You will go backward. You will float away from Christ. So we aren't living in a world that is a a, a still water. Where when we stop moving forward, we stay where we are in Christ. We are, as followers of Jesus, we are going against the current. We are walking up, down escalators. And when we stop, we don't stay in the same spot. We begin to drift away. What's the result of drifting away? Well... The author of Hebrews says, For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those 
who hurt him. Carelessness with the the message of Jesus. Carelessness in our relationship with Jesus will cause us to drift away from Jesus. And notice, notice the inspired author's word. If the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression received a just reward, judgment and punishment, how much more shall, or how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? What do you think the point that the author is making is? If in the old covenant there was a judgment for ignoring the word, how much more is there a judgment for neglecting a word spoken by the Lord Himself? Carelessness, the message of Jesus, it can cause us to drift away from Jesus. And in the end, we miss out on the salvation of Jesus. How can we escape judgment if we neglect so great a salvation? The implied answer is, we won't. Our children won't. Our grandchildren won't. Our co-workers won't. Our neighbors won't. Our friends won't. We won't. No one will escape the judgment to come if they neglect the message, if they neglect Jesus. So what is the danger of drifting? The danger of drifting is we can drift to damnation. The danger of drifting is that we can drift to damnation. One of the issues that makes a gradual drift so dangerous is we usually don't even realize we've drifted or how far we've drifted until it's too late. I think something we all know we've seen either in others or in our own lives is how few people make changes in their lives until the pain of staying the same way is greater than the pain of change. As long as we're convinced we're going in basically the right direction, and as long as we're convinced that basically we're going to be okay, and as long as we're convinced that our our little drift isn't that big of a deal and it won't bring terribly negative consequences into our lives, we will continue to drift and we will continue to head Toward the falls of damnation. We will either ignore the warning signs and the danger that we're drifting. Or we will completely convince ourselves that we're not drifting. One of the the sad realities of human nature is we are expert self-deceivers. We are experts at explaining why our drifting really isn't drifting. 
Why our not taking the more earnest heed really isn't not taking the more earnest heed. Why we will be the exception and we will not reap what we sow. Why the the narrow gate got really broad just for us. Self-deception adds to the danger of drifting. Leads us. Makes it more prone for us to drift to damnation. So how can we know if we're drifting? Or if we have drifted since we are so easily deceived. Since we are self-deceived, we, we want to be deceived. Ultimately, only the Holy Spirit can make us see that we've drifted and see the danger of our drifting. But I believe what we see in Scripture is the Holy Spirit wants us to know is that we're drifting. He wants us to be aware that we are moving away from Christ and toward judgment. What we're going to do this morning is just ask ourselves three questions. Look at some verses and close. Before we look at the questions, though, I want us to just take a moment and pray specifically that we would be aware and we would be open and we would let the Holy Spirit speak to us in this time. Let's pray. Father, we ask right now to send your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see our spiritual condition. Father, we're easily self-deceived. And Father, most of the time we want to be self-deceived. So send your Holy Spirit to overcome our self-deception and our desire for self-deception. If we've drifted today, make us aware. I mean clearly aware that we're drifting and we are in danger. Give us ears to hear. Let us be honest about how we answer your word and how we answer these questions. If we have drifted, turn us back. Let us not be careless. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So question one, have I drifted in my love for Jesus? If I were to ask you what was the greatest commandment, I'm sure everyone in here could answer it. That the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that commandment, that passage is so familiar that we can miss how significant and how important that it really is. Truly loving Jesus with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, this is not a a secondary issue. This question was, or this statement is given in response to a question from a religious leader about the greatest commandment. Now, keep in mind that the guy who asked this was a religious person. A religious Jew. He was religious in the right religion. He wasn't a Baalite. He wasn't a Molochite. He wasn't worshipping Zeus. He was religious in Judaism. But Judaism had developed a system of theology that... Question: What was the most important thing in the Jewish religion? And this theological topic that they debated came up that there were over 600 commands in the Old Testament law. 
And that didn't take into consideration the, the traditions that had been passed down through the ages. These laws included ritual, ethical, moral, and ceremonial laws. There were positive and negative laws. And they spent an inordinate amount of time debating with one another which one was the most important commandment. And that's what they asked Jesus. Who's right? Who's right? And Jesus doesn't really play their little games. And He doesn't pick one of their pet traditions or another. He, he really gets back to the heart of what God had always wanted for His people. That they would love Him. And that that would be the basis for everything else. That they would love Him more than they loved anything else. And that because they loved their God so much, then they would do everything else. I mean, that they would just serve Him and devoted to Him and offer the sacrifices to Him because they loved Him more than everything else. This was ultimate. Well, nothing has really changed. This is still what's ultimate. It's loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But what makes this so challenging is that loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, it's actually intensely practical. Right? Loving God, love for Jesus, it's not made of flowery speeches. It's not made of, of emotional speeches. In fact, it's really not so much made of our words at all. It is intensely practical in our day-to-day -day life because Jesus tells us, what does it look like to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Here's what Jesus says. If you love me, keep my commandments. There it is. How can I say how can I show Jesus? How do I declare my love for the Lord? I do what He says. Oh, but that's just one verse. Surely, surely living in disobedience to the Word of God, surely that doesn't really say anything because in my heart I just feel love. Well, He who has my commandments and keep them, that's the one that loves me, Jesus says. And then he, just to be sure, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my commandments. I mean, Jesus is, is disturbingly clear about what it looks like to love him. Love for Jesus, it's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. Now, that may be there. But love for Jesus is ultimately obedience to Jesus. Oh, but what if, what if I feel in my heart I love Jesus and yet I just kind of do my own thing in life? Jesus answered that too. He who does not love me does not keep my words. According to Jesus. If our lives are not marked by obedience to Him, we do not love Him. No matter what emotion we feel. No matter what flowery words we can say. 
no matter, no matter what we post on social media, if we do not practically love Jesus, then Jesus says we do not actually love him. But obedience, now here's where it gets hard. So we think, okay, well, I'll just knuckle it under and I'll do it. I'll just do it because I love Jesus. I'll, I'll make myself do it. Mm. Jesus says something about their John says something about that too. This is the love of God. We keep his commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. Man. Not only is love seen in obeying Jesus. But love is seen in not being burdened by obeying Jesus. Love is seen that we want to obey Jesus. That we love to obey Jesus. That we find joy in obeying Jesus. Everything we do for Jesus is a burden in our lives. Something we have to make ourselves do because we don't like to do it. Our relationship with Jesus is not what it should be. When we love Jesus, our, our devotion to Him, our service to Him, it won't be a hardship to endure. It will be a blessing, not a bother. So, how is your service and your devotion to Jesus today? Is it evident in your obedience to His words? What is your attitude towards those acts of obedience? Bother or blessing? Joy or something you endure? Have you drifted? Have I drifted? In our love for Jesus. Secondly, have I drifted in my love for Jesus? Have I drifted in my passion for Jesus? Many professing believers today are like artificial flowers. They look good on the outside, but on the inside they have no genuine spiritual fervor, no passion for Jesus. It's artificial. It's like Jesus warning about the, the religious leaders who were like whitewashed Sepulchers, beautiful on the outside, but inwardly filled with dead men's bones. As the old time preachers would say, many believers today have lost their fire. Now, there's a lot of reasons this happens, a lot of ways that this happened. But I think the one that we find most often that that goes along with drifting and self-deception, is living on past glory rather than on present fervor. Resting on what they have been rather than on what they are. I, I talk to many people who can tell you about things God did in their life years ago. But what's God done in your life lately? And it's silence. 
They can tell you about their acts of devotion because they loved God and they were passionate about God years ago. But what about your acts of devotion spurred by passion today? Silence. They talk about how much they used to read the Bible. How much do you read it today? How much they used to pray. How often they used to fast. How important church used to be. How often they used to share the gospel. Well, what about today? Silence. They're relying on what they were rather on what they've become. And what they've become is complacent, satisfied, and apathetic. And be sure of this. Any Christian, any Christian, complacently resting on past faithfulness instead of focusing on present faithfulness has lost or is losing their passion for Jesus. They are or they have drifted. For this is not the way it's supposed to be. A disciple of Jesus is not to be lagging in diligence, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Not lagging in diligence in some translations. It simply says don't be lazy. Diligence were to be busy about the Lord's business. To do the things that He would have us to do. But the way that we do it is to be fervent in spirit. Now if you notice the S in spirit is not capitalized. So this doesn't refer to the Holy Spirit, but to our spirit. It means that as disciples of Jesus, we are to be excited and enthusiastic in our service to Christ. One of my commentaries says this. The believer must have a holy zeal for Christ. He must be aflame in his service for Christ. Holy zeal. Aflame. Those are a far cry from doing what we do out of an obligation. And that, that is the way it's meant to be. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have repented of your sins, Christ is Lord of your life, then His word to you is, don't be lagging in diligence, but be fervent in spirit, serving Him. For all of us. For all of us. That's not for the preacher. That's not for missionaries. That's not for deacons. That's not for Sunday school teachers. That's not for the song leader. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are not to be lagging in diligence. You are to be fervent in spirit and active in your service to the Lord. And when anything else characterizes your service, you have or you are drifting Away from Christ. So do you still have a passion for doing the things that you do for Jesus? Is there a stirring in your heart when you sing praises to the Lord? Or is it just a routine? 
that you go through. Now, I know church isn't the end-all, be-all of being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, not lagging in diligence, but make no mistake, it's, it's part of it. What's your attitude about coming to church? Do you have to come? Do you get to come? Do you make yourself come or do you are you excited about coming? What about when you when you pray on your own? What's your attitude about that time of prayer? What's your attitude about your time of studying the word? What about if an opportunity comes up and someone says, "Hey, you go to church. Tell me why." What's the what's the feeling in your heart? Excitement? Dread? Changing the subject? Are we excited? Do we have a holy zeal? Because our hearts are aflame. Or do we just go through the motions and get excited when the end is near? Have you drifted? Have I drifted? In our passion for Jesus. I drifted in my love for Jesus. I drifted in my passion for Jesus. Have I drifted in my commitment to Jesus? One of the most familiar sayings in Scripture is Jesus calling the church at Laodicea lukewarm. They weren't hot. They weren't cold. They were merely lukewarm. And their lukewarm condition was a reflection of their casual commitment to Jesus. Their commitment, it wasn't strong enough to move them to the place where they would help the weary or the hurting. Their commitment to Jesus wasn't strong enough to motivate them to do anything for anyone but themselves. It was just enough to ease their conscience. It was just enough to make them feel acceptable to God. It was just enough where they thought they would escape the fires of hell. Probably they wouldn't hear, well done, good and faithful servant, but probably... They wouldn't hear, depart from me, I never knew you either. And that was all that mattered. Now, if you're familiar with the passage, you know how Jesus felt about their lukewarm commitment to them. He makes one of the strongest statements to them that He makes in all of Scripture. He says, because they are not hot nor cold, but lukewarm, He will vomit them. Out of his mouth. The King James says spew. Picturing violent retching. But their lukewarmness disgusted him. He would reject them with extreme disgust. He never calls for, nor does Jesus ever accept, casual Commitment. He always calls for a total, absolute commitment. 
And he rejects everything else. It says, when the multitudes went to him, he turned and he said to them, if anyone wants to come after me, come to me. Does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, his own life cannot be my disciple. Put on his bear's cross and come after me. Cannot be my disciple. When Jesus had crowds that followed him, he always said or did something to thin the herd. He wasn't thinning the herd to thin the herd. It wasn't a point to just offend, to be offensive, just to say a hard thing to prove he was a hard person. Instead, it was to weed out those who were casually committed to him from those who were truly committed to him. He was not seeking a casually committed crowd. He was seeking a deeply committed core who would turn the world upside down. Jesus knew that casually committed disciples would not change the world. They wouldn't keep going when things got hard. He knew that they would be beaten and persecuted and suffer for His name. The casually committed crowd, they weren't going to stick it through that. They weren't going to go to jail. They wouldn't be beaten. They wouldn't lose their jobs for the sake of Christ. They would turn around because it was too difficult. He needed revolutionaries who could change things. Not a casually committed crowd who thought he was cool because he upset the religious leaders. So in this instance, he tells the crowd what it takes for them to come to him and follow him and be his disciple. And he does it in a negative way. You cannot be my disciple if you don't do what I've said to do. If you don't love me more than your family, more than father or mother, wife or children, you cannot be my disciple. If you're not willing to die, you don't love me more than your own life, you cannot be my disciple. If you're a a person who really craves the creature comforts and you're not willing to be uncomfortable for Jesus, he says you cannot be my disciple. Our commitment to Jesus must be such that we would forsake anything and everything at his command. And he says if we aren't that committed, then we cannot be his disciple. And what we want to do, what the temptation is, is to soften all of that up. And I think that's why the Laodicean passage exists. They had tried to soften it up. They had tried to lighten it up. And Jesus tells them and us that he's actually repulsed when we try to offer him a casual commitment. He knows who he is. He knows what he has done. He knows what He can make us and what He has done on our behalf. Therefore, He is worthy of a complete and a wholehearted devotion. And He makes no qualms whatsoever about that's what He expects. Multiple times in the Gospels, when people could not accept his standards, and they would turn and they would walk away. Do you know what Jesus did in every 
single instance, He let them. He never once chased after them. He never once lightened up. When the rich young ruler was not willing to sell all that he had, give it to the poor and follow him for riches in heaven, Jesus let him go and said how hard it is for a rich man to enter heaven. When he said you have to eat my body and drink my blood, and many said, Woof, that's a hard saying, who can endure it? And they turned to walk away. He let them and he turned to the twelve and he said, You guys going to? And when these people turned and they walked away, he let them. America is like Laodicea in so many ways. Not the least of which is the commonness of being casually committed to Jesus. Casual commitment is seen in a variety of ways. Particularly regarding our spiritual disciplines. Prayer, Bible study, church attendance. Finding and using our spiritual gifts. Telling others about Jesus, generosity. Giving all diligence to add to our faith. The pursuit of holiness, serving others. On and on it goes. And hitting and missing in those disciplines is far more common than consistency in the American church. Much of the American church. In much of the American church, we have more faith in a political party than in the gospel. We are more upset at the loss of our favorite political leader than we are the fact that people around us will die and go to hell. We are more joyful at its success of our political party than we are at the salvation of a soul. I mean, can can we honestly say we are wholly committed to Christ? That we have presented ourselves as living sacrifices. Or have we, we, not, not you, have we drifted in our commitment to Christ? Reason how we answer matters. It's because we can drift far enough away that we drift to damnation. That was what was going on in the, author of, in the book of Hebrews. The question I want to answer quickly is how do we how do we prevent this? Because I, I don't want to drift. And yet, like the song says, prone to wander, I feel it. I, I feel the wandering in all of those areas. How do we prevent it? How do we keep from getting off course? We'll go back to the land navigation illustration. One of the main ways to stay on your azimuth is to find a fixed point in the distance. Tree, light pole, and then walk to it, and then pick another one off in the distance and walk to it. Well, for us, Jesus is that point in the distance that we we look to, we focus on. The author of Hebrews will later say, "Since we are surrounded by so great a great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us." 
And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. As long as we are looking to Jesus and walking toward Jesus, we will stay on course. The way that we keep our eyes on Jesus is what the author says. Give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard. But we we keep our eyes on Jesus. We look to Jesus. We walk to Jesus as we take heed to the word. It is impossible to follow Jesus without taking heed to his word. The word is always going to be central. The Word is always the foundation. The Word is so important that Jesus will say, Why bother calling me Lord if you're not even going to do what I've told you to do? To stay on course, we must give the more earnest heed to Scripture so that we can keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We can keep Him as the fixed point in the distance. And as long as we are taking heed to the Word and walking toward Jesus, following Him, we will not drift away. We will not go off course. But when our eyes are off of Him, when we are not taking the more earnest heed, we will, not might, we will drift Of course. So have you drifted in your love for Jesus? Have you drifted in your passion for Jesus? Have you drifted in your commitment to Jesus? And if you answered yes to any of those questions, does that answer bother you? It should. See, here's the Here's where the rubber meets the road. Because it's easy enough to say, I heard the message and go on. It's easy enough to say, yeah, I can see where I've drifted. What are you going to do about it? Because if you've drifted, right now there is something in you saying it's not that big of a deal. Don't get too upset by that. Look at all of these people that you're better than. Fourteen people last week told you how wonderful you were. And let me be clear. That voice, that is not God. That is not God the Son. That is not God the Father. That is not God the Holy Spirit. Because if you've drifted, God is saying, repent. Turn back. Take this seriously. Be burdened. And broken over your drifting. Correct your course today. Who are you going to listen to? Who am I going to listen to? Are we going to follow the Spirit and the Word back to following Jesus? Are we going to let the world, the flesh, and the devil cause us to drift to the cliff of damnation? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come today and we do bow in your presence and we surrender this, our lives to you. 
You know if we've drifted. You know how we've drifted. Press on us about it. Make us bothered and burdened by it. Father, we know there is a voice telling us not to make a big deal. Not to get upset. Just to kind of ride it out. But oh Lord, let the voice of the Word and the voice of the Spirit scream over the top of that voice and drown it out. Help us to see how our drifting will take us to the cliffs of damnation. Father, let us not drift and self-deceive ourselves into thinking it's going to be okay. Press on us right now and and press on us continually until we surrender to get back on the right path. Father, if we are on the right path, encourage us. Strengthen us to stay on it. For there is a tendency to drift one way or the other. And let us stay faithful and focused upon you. Have your way in our lives. We can arrive safely at the other shore. And hear a well done, good and faithful servant. Guide us in this time. Bring glory to yourself. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.